0: Hello, welcome to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio Show, Monday, Thursday, 10 to 1. How do you solve a problem like Nicola? That's the question that we're asking today. Nicola Sturgeon surging in the polls, so support for Scottish independence. I speak to the man who tried to stop the whole thing, Douglas Ross, the Conservative Scottish leader. Uh, about how on earth he plans to try and reverse the tide of uh, independence in Scotland and how he copes with his boss in Westminster being uh, Boris Johnson. That's coming up in just a sec, but first is Tuesday, so it should be Finkelvich, but David Ivanovich has lost his Finkel. Uh, Danny is not available uh, for selection this week, so he's been joined by Sebastian Payne from the FT. So here we are, this is David Ivanovich and Sebastian Payne. So, are we all excited about hurdling into tier three just in time for Christmas, David?
1: I, I it, The problem is, I actually genuinely feel depressed about it. I actually just do. Uh, and then I think to myself, I'm much, much better off than all kinds of people I've no right to pick yourself up, blah, 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 blah. I just, I mean, it's necessary, but I hate it.
0: Yeah, what about you, sir? Where do you, where, are you similarly downbeat?
2: I'm afraid to say I am, Matt. I wish I could be a bit more cheerful about it all, but it sort of felt that we'd had the lockdown in November. Things were starting to get a little bit better. We had this Christmas Freedom Week, as I hear some people describing it, but that looks as if it's rapidly coming to an end. We're into Tier 3, and I think it's that general sense of foreboding that um, most of the country is going to probably be in tier three in January and that's going to stay all the way through until the vaccine effects start to kick in so it's just that sort of quite grim thought that the next kind of two months there's not a huge amount to look forward to.
0: Yeah so let's talk about this Christmas thing because yeah in the last few minutes the uh, British Medical Journal and the Health Service Journal have published this joint editorial calling on the government to uh, U-turn, basically, on this plan to relax uh, the, the rules on household mixing over Christmas. They're saying that uh, it um, is about to, if the government doesn't change course, it's about to blunder into another major error that will cost many lives. The pressure's definitely building on this, isn't it? It's, very, it's a very difficult sell for ministers to say, right, do as you're told, don't be doing anything this week, but next week, um, you know, do what you like. The,
1: the Christmas break is nuts. It's nuts. It makes no sense other than everybody wants it. And we built it up and we've talked about it endlessly as if everybody in Britain, incidentally, was a Christian, which they're not. People have already had to go through Diwali, uh, et cetera, without doing without doing these things. Uh, So we'll have a five days when we will do the very thing that we know most quickly spreads virus. In the period when we are rolling out the vaccine, but not sufficiently having rolled it out in order to protect the people who are likely to get the virus as a consequence of taking this action, it makes no sense. What's going on here politically, um, uh, Seb? Because there's, there's part of me that
0: wonders whether, how do I say it, the media was slightly to blame, that for weeks and weeks and weeks... The media kept, you know, itching to do the Christmas is cancelled story. The government, you know, no one really expected Christmas to be normal. The government sort of ended up coming up with this compromise that three households could mix. But the problem is that those three households mix. You only need one person to give everyone their coronavirus. They all go then go home, probably travelling right across the country. And it's everyone knows this, you know, in terms of uh, controlling coronavirus. Everyone knows this is a daft idea.
2: So I think the issue is that the government is not trying to create a problem, it's trying to manage it here because there's lots of work that's been done about the behavioural science behind this and the general view within government is that if they don't try and manage the Christmas period, people will just break it willy-nilly and if you look at compliance in lockdown one versus lockdown two versus the fact it's Christmas, everybody's a bit fed up, they want to see their families and they might just kind of say, oh forget it, I'm just going to go and see my family anyway. So the idea of creating this... Christmas um, relaxation was to say to people, look, you can go and this is a way of trying to see people in a safe as possible manner without people just going out and partying like there's no tomorrow. The problem is, of course, though, that it's five days, which is quite a lot of, quite a significant period. Um, and it's three households. If you look at what Germany's doing, for example, it's much looser than that. And this um, editorial you mentioned, Matt, absolutely speaks to the point that it does seem a bit madness when when the virus is still spreading very rapidly, and it, you think of London, I don't want to be too London centric about this, but what happens at Christmas, thousands, if not millions, of people who live in London go across the country to go and see their family. Like you couldn't think of more of an event to spread um, people, but I do have a bit of sympathy with the government for having to try and manage that situation. But I would guess very likely in the next couple of days, they will probably tighten the restrictions and maybe only make it a couple of days, maybe reduce the number of households. I don't think they're going to abolish it entirely because if they do, then I think there is just a risk that people will just kind of say, Well, I'm going to just do what I want anyway. And once you've done that behaviourally, people are much less likely to follow rules in the future as well.
0: Yeah, I suppose there is part of that. Although the, the really striking thing is that actually, if you looked at all the surveys, and I know, I know partly. People tell pollsters they're going to abide by the rules without necessarily doing that. But um, before the Christmas relaxation was announced, I think it was about ten percent of people said they're going to mix with other households. Once it was announced, that shot up to about thirty-five percent. So it is giving people permission. Um, you know, you're right that not everyone is going to follow every rule, but um, if there are rules there, the bulk of people will, or even if they only break them a little bit, that's better than you know, apparently giving them free rein, David. It's a really I, mean, I don't envy the government, but it is tricky this, isn't
1: it? I don't envy them I don't envy them at all, and I, 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 and I think Seb's given a very kind of uh, plausible account of the dilemma uh, involved. But there is an additional factor here which could always have been deployed, which could always be deployed, which is we have a vaccine. So what we're talking about is waiting a little bit. We're talking about waiting two months. Is it really impossible for us to imagine say, okay? The actual Christmas celebrations, have them in two months' time or three months' time. When we adjudge that we've got sufficient rollout of the vaccine, we will organise a bank holiday when everybody can go and see their families, etc. By all means, send, you know, send the gifts, etc. But we're not going to do this five days at this point because at this particular point it is going to cause deaths which could easily be avoided really easily be be avoided. Now, wouldn't that be a message, you think, that quite a lot of Britons, or most Britons, could actually absorb? Well, you'd hope so. You'd sort of
0: think that, that would uh, that would be the case. and Yeah, well, we'll wait to see. It does feel like the government is... The government's currently saying it's got no plans to change its plans, which doesn't necessarily rule out the fact that they might have plans to change their plans later. Um, let's uh, tackle this bigger... The great big question that you want to discuss, David, that, that how fragile is democracy right now? Yesterday, we had the... Uh, U.S. Electoral College casting its vote uh, to confirm Joe Biden's um, uh, victory of the U.S. presidential election, uh, but outside, you know, you had the Proud Boys marching. You've still got supporters of Donald Trump uh, calling to question the whole process.
1: Um, you can look at this in in either of two ways. Um, uh, one you can say is, well, look, the institutions of American democracy actually produced the result which we all knew. Uh, was the right result, which was that Joe Biden won both with massively with the popular vote and more narrowly with the electoral college vote. Uh, and job done, etc. Courts did their job, particularly the courts did their job. We're safe. On the other hand, you have to say that millions and millions, tens of millions of Americans and most of the Republican Party were both believed or said they believed that an election that wasn't stolen was stolen. In other words, they called the democratic process into into serious question and then behaved as if it wasn't legitimate. Um, And we're talking, as I said, tens of millions of people and an entire major political party, one of the two great political parties of America. That doesn't feel safe to me. And the other point, which I think a lot of people have been inclined to make. Suppose the election had been won by Biden but had been closer. Suppose he'd won a million, two million in the popular vote, and he'd only won the electoral college votes uh you know, by let's say ten or so. Are we quite so sanguine? that some mechanism wouldn't have been found in one or two of those states etc to try and block that election going ahead. I mean do we do we think that are we confident about that with that latter one I'm not so sure but with the former one it terrifies me. How did essentially people who four to eight years ago were democratically inclined get this way in such a short period of time? Psychologically it's fascinating and really terrifying.
0: And it feels like something, that once the genie's out of the bottle, difficult to get it back in, Seb.
2: It does, and I think a lot of this comes down to... The difference between faith and practical politics here—that when you look at the Republican Party, so many of them have put their entire stock in believing in Donald Trump—and in many respects of faith, you have to suspend reality and ignore uncomfortable truths. And I think that's exactly what's happened to so many Republicans. That people who, you know, the people who—you know—the example I always think of this is Senator um, Lindsey Graham, who was a very big critic of Donald Trump and um, completely fell out with him. And he was a very close ally of Senator John McCain, who. Was who died, um, died quite recently. Um, and then suddenly, Lindsey Graham just decided, you know what, I'm just going to have a complete 180 degree U become Trump's biggest advocate, completely laying into John McCain. And it's because he s- just started believing in this kind of gospel that Trump puts forward there. So when he comes out with this alternative narrative about the election, that in fact, it was all rigged and there's this other entire election result that we just didn't see and would suddenly... Um, come into the public domain. People buy into that. And I guess it's a comforting thing, right? If you don't want to confront reality or confront the fact that you lost the election, then just keep believing in it. And I think there is a case to be made that the way Donald Trump has acted after the election is more damaging than anything he did during his four years in office. Because Joe Biden becomes president now and next month, it's completely plausible. There's going to be millions of people who will simply not accept he is a legitimate president. And that has far which in for American democracy, for the midterm elections and for anything he's trying to do. Because you could totally see the case of people saying now that um, anything Joe Biden does, oh, well, it's not right. It's not legal, it's not legitimate because his president doesn't stand. So the people who have believed in Trump to put forward this narrative have an awful lot to answer for.
0: Uh, and what about the threat um, here, David, given that we import everything else in America, whether it's sitcoms or <laughs> burgers or whatever it might be? Um, we whenever this sort of thing is sort of bubbled up in the past you know don 't use pencils, take pens the ballot paper, but you know to the polling station it 's slightly dismissed as a sort of slightly crank uh viewpoint. Yeah. Is there any evidence of this sort
1: of undermining in the whole process sort of being imported here? The critical question is whether um not necessarily moderate but let's say people who are partisan but have usually signed up to the democratic process decide that they're not going to do that anymore Uh, and it's the same here as it is there so if several major newspapers and radio stations etc gave themselves over to the narrative that there had been a conspiracy to defeat x y and z here and that was linked to a kind of partisan politics then i imagine that Not quite something like that. We don't have the kind of religiosity and we suspect the kind of theatricality of American politics here. I wouldn't go overboard in that, but nevertheless, we do. Then in that case, you could see an erosion, not as big as that, I don't think, but nevertheless, you could see the beginning of one.
0: And I suppose that's where... um we all have some responsibility in that and the you know, we see a little I mean it's all slightly thing, different thing but with the reaction to coronavirus and people just people who don't like being told to stay at home then instead of just saying I just don't like this which nobody does trying to find flaws or conspiracies and everything all has the same effect in a way Seb of yeah. just undermining faith in in the people we elect to sort of keep us safe.
2: Exactly. And this year, we've obviously seen the, the prominence of scientists more than any time in my lifetime in British society. Um, and in some ways, you should say this is a great thing. These are people who are experts, who are trusted, who are out there, who have no political agenda at all to try and put forward their case for what we need to do to combat coronavirus. But that hasn't started, stopped certain people from putting stuff out there. You know, there's been some stuff doing the rounds on Twitter this morning about one right wing columnist kind of saying, you know, I don't know anyone who's had COVID, hardly anybody. I don't know anyone who's died from it. Therefore, it's all the media's fault for whipping this whole thing up. And, you know, sure, believe that if you want to, but it's completely bonkers. And it, it you have to ask yourself, in the case of people like this with COVID and Republicans, are people... Wantingly ignoring the fact, are they doing this because it's easier to ignore the reality that is very tough and is very difficult? In the case of Republicans, you lost the election. In the case of Libertarians, there is no alternative to shut society down. Or are they just being rather dumb about it? And it is kind of one of the big questions of 2020. This exposed people's views on this. People who can't read statistics, who can't listen to experts, and can't read the facts of what democracy produces. And you know, the, you should, we should be asking why do these people have any kind of prominence? And in America, it's a very tough one because these people keep getting elected to office because, of course, the fact that it's just the most astounding thing about the election is Joe Biden won the most votes of any presidential candidate ever in American history. The second person was Donald Trump despite everything. And the fact that you can produce that kind of result doesn't really bode well for the polarisation of society. Yeah,
0: you're being very polite, though, and not mention Alison Pearson by next. So Alison Pearson is the, is the columnist <laughs> at the Daily Telegraph. She tweeted, I've asked so many people if they know anyone who has COVID, who has had COVID. Hardly anyone. Two people knew someone not close who died. Without Daily News, would we even know there was a pan, an, an epidemic? Somebody replied to her, saying that sadly her bridesmaid's husband had died and a great friend also lost her life. To which Alison Pearson replied, My whole family had it. Two mild symptoms, one quite bad, one asymptomatic. So amongst the... Despite saying that she knows hardly anyone who's had it, she then (laughs) revealed her entire family had had it. Um, And that, you know, but needless to say, you know, the tweet saying, you know, hardly anyone's had it has had thousands and thousands of wee tweets. And and the one where she admitted that her whole family had had it hasn't really either, David. I don't know what we could do about that. Maybe just don't follow Alison Pearson on Twitter.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe Twitter give her one of those things they gave Donald Trump. (laughs) Well, it's like a a little um,
0: Uh, warning message.
1: That's like, loony, don't read this.
0: (laughs) That was David Aronovich and Sebastian Payne. And of course, you can read David's column every Thursday in the Times. Just pick up a copy of the paper or go to thetimes.co.uk. And if you haven't got a Times subscription yet, which I find very hard to believe, uh, you can put that right. Or maybe it's the perfect Christmas present. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, I speak to Douglas Ross. You're listening to Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, how'd you solve a problem like Nicola? The Scottish First Minister is still surging in the polls. The SNP look, on course, to win another landslide in next year's Hollywood elections, paving the way for, as they would see, a second independence referendum, uh, which current polling suggests she would win. So, how'd you stop it? The thankless task falls to Douglas Ross, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives. He took over this summer when Jackson Carlaw stood down. He's not even in the Scottish Parliament yet, so former leader Ruth Davidson is standing in for him until he gets there next May. hope you can follow all of that. So what is his plan to reverse the tide and save the union? Well, we can ask him because Douglas Ross joins me now. Good morning, Douglas.
4: Good morning, Matt.
0: Uh, thanks for um, joining us. I suppose we should inevitably start with the obvious. Overnight, we've got another poll, uh, this time for Salvation, which puts independence ahead. 52% yes, 48% no. Uh, this is the 16th poll in a row where independence has been out on top. Are you fighting a losing battle on this?
4: No, and it's what I said uh, in a number of speeches that I've made, that you know, people who think independence is inevitable simply play into the nationalist hands. You know, I don't underestimate the challenge that we face. Uh, but it's a fight I'm passionate about. It's one that, you know, over 2 million people voted in in 2014 to remain part of the United Kingdom. Uh, And I think, you know, we've got a lot of work to do, but there is a strong, passionate case for Scotland's place in the United Kingdom. What Scotland gets has been part of the UK and what Scotland gives to the rest of the United Kingdom, are four nations working together, particularly at this time, during a global pandemic, we've seen we are greater at the sum of all our parts than any individual nation could on their own. I'm interested. What do you think is the main driver
0: of this that's driven up um, support for independence? Is it coronavirus and the fact that because it's a health crisis, it's devol- health is devolved, so it's given you know it's it's emphasised uh, those differences. Is it is it still Brexit? Is it the prime minister? What's what do you think is driving that support for independence?
4: Well, I think we've seen a lot of different individual issues that may have contributed to to some people moving from uh, no to yes in opinion polls, but that doesn't mean that's their firm place should there ever be another independence referendum. We've seen people moving uh, from both yes to no and and no to yes. So there are a a variety of reasons why people have currently changed their opinions, but that doesn't mean that's their uh, steadfast resolution for uh, the future of Scotland's place in the United Kingdom. Let's so go on then. Make
0: the, let's do the sort of the doorstep test. You come and knock. I live in I don't know Aberdeen. You come and knock on my door. Try try and persuade. Make the best case against independence and for the union before I sort of yep. shut the door on you.
4: Well, first of all, I'm not allowed to visit your door in Aberdeen because it's in tier two in Scotland. <laughs> Very and good. In, in tier one, I'd so. like to think that
0: was a clever trap I laid for you, but I can't. <laughs> it was the first place that came to mind. But fine. Well, well, Assuming that it's, you know, in the future um, and you are able to come and knock on my door, make the case for uh, for the union.
4: Well, we've seen throughout this pandemic that the, the UK government's furlough scheme has protected almost a million jobs in Scotland. We've seen through the uh, pandemic that the UK has procured the vaccine that is being rolled out uh, to our healthcare care workers and, and the most vulnerable in Scotland right now, the first... Uh, Annie Innes was the first resident of a care home in Scotland to get that vaccine yesterday. We've seen throughout this pandemic and before uh, that Scotland uh, benefits so much from being part of the United Kingdom and it's both that argument on economics that I've started with but also the head, uh, the head and the heart because you know there's a lot of family ties that I don't want to see the division that we had just six years ago uh, ripping up Scotland again, you know that division that we saw in families, in workplaces, in communities and I think particularly for the next five years, Scottish Parliament, all our focus and all our effort should be on rebuilding post-COVID. Once we get through this health pandemic, there's then going to be an economic emergency that we have to deal with, and we will deal with that far greater and far better if we do that together as one nation of the United Kingdom and the support that brings all four nations and all four parts of our family. The... Um... You mentioned the Hollywood elections coming
0: up next year. The SNP are clearly going to uh, promise a second uh, referendum in it. If they win a majority, don't they have the democratic right to hold that referendum?
4: Well, I've said all along since I became leader, I'm not going to enter into hypotheticals about what happens in an election that's still six months away that not a single vote has been cast in, the campaign hasn't started. And people have to remember that the SNP previously had a majority in Scotland and they lost it at the last election. And they lost it in 2016 because the Scottish Conservatives more than doubled their number of MSPs. We went to up to 31 MSPs and we stopped the SNP getting a majority. So there is a clear way to stop this further division and concentration on constitutional matters and get back on to actually delivering for people in Scotland. And that means improving our education system, supporting the NHS, making sure our economy is strong enough to um, bounce back after the COVID pandemic, protecting people's jobs. These are all issues that, again, opinion polls suggest people rate far uh, more important than more constitutional wrangling uh, that the SNP thinks dominates uh, both their thinking and the thinking of people across Scotland. If the, um, there's been obviously lots of talk about the SNP, if they win the
0: election next year, they might, and Boris Johnson said that he won't grant them that second referendum, but they might, they might stage their own. Uh, Is it why the Scottish Conservatives said you would boycott such a thing and wouldn't campaign in it?
4: Yeah, I wouldn't take part in any campaign that's, uh, you know, not uh, fully uh, legitimate. There is a a clear process to go through uh, as the UK and Scottish governments went through ahead of the 2014 referendum. Uh, And Nicola Sturgeon herself as a co-secretary of the Edinburgh Agreement, which set out the rules. Um, surrounding the 2014 referendum said it was the gold standard. If that is the gold standard of referendums, according to the now leader of the SNP and First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, then I don't think we should be looking at any other uh, alternative that doesn't have the agreement and the Section 30 order uh, that would have to be uh, granted by the UK Parliament. Okay, let's talk about um since you took over,
0: you were talking about how you think that you might be able to try and deprive the SNP of a majority uh next year. Um since you became leader in August, support for the Conservatives in Scotland has actually dropped from twenty five percent in September to twenty percent in this latest servation poll. Why do you think that is? You're now in third place in this latest
4: poll. Well, actually that latest servation poll shows the Scottish Conservative vote up on the previous poll and the SNP vote down on the previous poll. Um so you know, just in terms of the the previous observation poll, that's the difference, that's the the movement. But, you know, I'm not saying I'm, uh, you know, uh, you know, in the position that uh, you know we're ready to be in to, to take on the SNP right now. But what we have done in my first few months as leader uh, is come up with a range of policies that people can see we are serious about challenging the SNP. We're the only party in Scotland that can take on the SNP. That's been clear from local council by-elections, that's been clear from opinion polling, uh, and that's been clear from the policies we are taking forward. Policies to rebuild our economy, to ensure our schools uh, are far better now um, uh, and in the next parliament than in the last 13 and a half years where Uh, Education has fallen down the international rankings and it has done so because the SNP have been more focused on uh, independence and their own plans for separation rather than schools, on education, on the economy. These are the issues that the Scottish Parliament can and should be focused on in the next five year term, not on another divisive um, referendum on Scottish independence.
0: A lot of a lot of what you're saying, people would, um, uh, you know, if you just look at the facts, if you look at, you know, actually their record in education, or all their record on the NHS, the SNP do have a lot uh, of questions to ask. I suppose my, the thing that really surprised me then: why on earth are they then on fifty three percent in the polls? Um, is it a total failure of all opposition parties to to take on Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP? They've been in government for a long time. Their track record is not perfect, and yet more. than than half of scottish people uh, people in scotland say they're going to vote for them next year
4: well it's because a lot of the focus in in scotland is on the the constitution is on should there be another independence referendum should people vote to remain part of the united kingdom uh, or to have scotland separate from the rest of the uk and therefore the focus is not on the domestic record where i think it should be it should be on all these issues but there is simply um you know a, a lack of focus a lack of attention paid to the domestic uh, agenda of the SNP and their failures uh, in these areas, uh, because the questions, you know, as, as yours have been for the first uh, few minutes of this interview, are, are dominated by independence, and that suits the SNP. You know, they are happy to speak about separation and their plans for independence. Uh, they're not so happy to speak about the big holes in their argument over the economy, over pensions, over borders, but as long as they continue to speak about independence, it takes away and detracts from their appalling record in government.
0: Do you? What would you do then? What would be the first thing that you concentrated on? If you became first minister, if all the polls are, are wrong or they suddenly dramatically shift, you become first minister next year, what would be the first thing that you would do?
2: We'd have to
4: tackle our economy because I said in my leadership campaign that the first paper I would produce would be one on on jobs in the economy. And I produced within the first month of my leadership uh, a paper called Power Up Scotland. And that was uh, about investment in areas right across Scotland, you know, improving our connectivity, ensuring that people can get uh, good jobs anywhere uh, in the country rather than having to move away uh, from where they stay. You know, I, I live in the north of Scotland. I'm in Murray right now. And we see so many of our young people leaving this area to go to university. Or for further training and never coming back again. They then get jobs in, in the Central Belt in Glasgow and Edinburgh and move down to, to London. I want to ensure that anyone can uh, get the, the jobs, the employment, the, the support they need in any part of Scotland. And I think particularly in jobs in the economy, this is an area that the SNP have let us down on. You know, we felt uh, we saw in the... SMP's programme for government that Nicola Sturgeon couldn't even mention small businesses once, yet she could find time to have uh, another piece of legislation for a second independence referendum their priority is not on businesses it's not on protecting jobs, it's on separation and I want to change that
0: Okay, let's talk about the, um, the 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 Conservative Party in your your arrangement. So you've got this sort of job share. You're you're still an MP in Westminster. Ruth Davidson is standing in and, and sort of front and center, uh, f- uh, still in Westminster, in uh, Hollywood. Um, basically, the, there's no one within the Conservative Party with quite the uh, star power as Ruth Davidson. Is there?
4: Well, I was glad Ruth agreed to come back to frontline politics uh, to take on Nicola Sturgeon uh, in Holyrood until the election next year. And I think that just shows uh, our desire as a Scottish Conservative Party to, to challenge the SNP in Holyrood. I can challenge them uh, at Westminster. And, of course, you know, the, the, the route I've taken to be a, a leader of a, a Scottish party and, and seek election to Holyrood uh, is one very familiar to the SNP because Alex <laughs> Salmond was a member of Parliament when he became leader of the SNP for the second time. Uh, Nicholas Sturgeon deputised for him in Holyrood until he was elected to Holyrood. Uh, and then uh, he uh, took the SNP into government in 2007 uh, under that scenario. So let's talk about um, uh, your boss. Is, is Boris Johnson your boss? No, I'm the leader of the Scottish Conservative Party and we are a separate party from the, the, the UK Conservative Party.
0: So when did you last speak to him? How often do you speak to him?
4: Well, I, I speak to him fairly regularly. The last time I spoke to him was what were we now in uh, earlier on this month, uh, I think it was. Uh, obviously, things are, are quite different. A number of his visits to Scotland it has have been cancelled due to COVID. I'm speaking to you from Murray at the moment because I'm not going down to London quite so much because of the, the situation. I'm sorry if we were interrupted earlier by some planes overhead. I've got <laughs> a, an raf bossy that, that are doing a bit of flying over my house right now. So, you know, I'm in contact with the Prime Minister, with government ministers, and you know, I have a good working relationship with them. So uh, I
0: know I know it was a lovely part of the world there, but yeah, every so often a plane goes up and it's, it's amazingly loud. Um, uh, did you speak? You mentioned you speak to Boris Johnson regularly. Did you speak to him after he he, he told uh, MPs that devolution has been a disaster?
4: Yes. And, you know, I think those remarks have been clarified that the Prime Minister has has made it very clear. He supports devolution. Uh, He was uh, elected uh, twice uh, to the uh, Mayor of London position. Uh, So he knows the benefits of devolution. But he also uh, can see what many of us in Scotland can see, that the SNP have not use devolution to improve the lives of people as in Scotland, they've used devolution eh, as a, a further eh, step towards separation. And actually, I think a lot of people in Scotland would prefer that they just concentrate on the, the matters that affect people right now and deal with the issues that they have the powers and the funding to deal with, not to continually pick fights with Westminster, create division between the UK government and the Scottish government, eh, and to um, continually promote, promote their number one aim, which is to separate Scotland from the rest of the UK.
0: It was a really stupid thing for him to have said, though, wasn't it? On a call that was always going to leak and it's made your job even harder all over again.
4: Well, you know, I've clarified my position on that. The Prime Minister has clarified his position on that. And I think we both agree that devolution can work for Scotland if we get uh, a government that is interested in fulfilling um, the the wishes of people right across the country, which is to use the powers that we have, the funding that we have at the moment to, to improve everyone's lives here in Scotland.
0: What do, what do voters tell you about Boris Johnson when you're out trying to make the case for the Scottish Conservatives and making the case for the Union? What do they tell you about Boris Johnson?
4: Well, I'm focusing on you know how we take the, the challenge to the SNP, so I'm focusing on their domestic record. I'm not bringing up the Prime Minister. If he comes up, some people like him, some people don't. That's the nature of politics. You know, He is not immune to the opinion poll ratings that, that suggest he is uh, considerably less popular than other political leaders uh, in Scotland, um, but is the Prime Minister of, of the whole country. He's the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, uh, and he's absolutely passionate about the UK remaining uh, a strong uh, family of four nations together.
0: It's slightly odd, isn't it, a politician out campaigning, not mentioning their leader
4: when they're out and about? I I thought I clarified that. I I am the leader of the the Scottish Conservatives. It is a very separate entity from the UK Conservatives. We have distinct Scottish policies that are different from the the UK party. And I think that's right. You know, we can have uh, this relationship. And I've, I've made this point before. Some people seem to think it's strange that I can disagree with the the Prime Minister or or can take different positions from the UK party. I think that's healthy, that that we have a different situation in Scotland. We have a a leader of a Scottish party that can take a a different view, a different opinion and a different policy from the main UK party. And of course, that is alien to people in the SNP because they actually have it in their constitution that you are not allowed to take a position or a viewpoint that's separate from the leadership. I think that's unhealthy. I think that is very uh, dangerous, uh, and I actually prefer the fact that we can have these differences, we can have a, a robust debate about things, agree on issues, disagree on issues, uh, because that's how you get better policies. I suppose the thing is that
0: while you're currently an MP, you you, you do still have to walk through the lobbies and do as Boris Johnson asks you, and and, uh, and vote no, on. No, that's,
4: that's that's not the case, Matt, and indeed that hasn't been the case when I've voted against the government. So, you know, I've always been my own man and at times I've voted uh, against this government and previous Conservative governments and, and I think that's right, you know, we don't we're not robots. We don't all uh, elect the three hundred and sixty-four or, or however many Conservative MPs always vote in the same way. But you'll very rarely, if ever, see SNP politicians voting against what their leadership tells them to.
0: Okay, but look, I want to play something to you. Uh, a few weeks ago, we we did a we do a focus group every month here on Times. So James Johnson used to do exactly these things uh, for uh, Number Ten, and we did one with former No voters. They all voted No in the uh, original Scottish Independence referendum. Almost all now, it, as the conversation transpired, now said they were leaning towards backing independence. But this is what they had to say about the Prime Minister.
2: Lunatic.
4: Biffin. Mad. Unconvincing. <laughs> Untrustworthy. Bumbling. What, a biffin? I don't think he's in touch with the people. He's just an absolute snob.
0: A definite disconnect, I think, from real people to what Boris Johnson
4: sees. I never like, really liked him before, but I never really knew anything about him before. Now... I don't understand how he's a politician because I think he's absolutely messing the country up with what's happened with coronavirus. I would hate to be living down in England with him leading, leading, because I think he just does his own thing. I don't trust him. I, I don't trust anything that comes out of his mouth. He's not, He's more interested in the rich rather than the working class. Um, I think he's made a fool of himself down, down there. One now. of my work
0: colleagues, Kirsty, just backing up what you're saying about the untrustworthiness, even before coronavirus, one of the big facts somebody said to me was he, he won't even tell the truth about
4: how many children his father
2: yeah i would totally agree with gordon there about the, the children thing i think if you're going to sort of look into someone you look into their family family values and i think he's had about five mistresses or wives and i've heard as many as eight kids so that's where do you go with that that's, I mean, that's just a mess your reaction
0: to that douglas ross is all just a mess
4: Well, I just feel I should use this opportunity to be very clear that uh, my wife and I just had our our second scans. We're expecting our second child in June just to make sure that that figure is is out there and and confirmed. And I'm not trying to hide anything about the number of people have next year. But, you know, as I said earlier, the Prime Minister is not immune to uh, the criticism that the critique that people make of his leadership, of his style. Uh, but also, Scotland's place in the United Kingdom uh, shouldn't be determined on people's opinion of one politician. Well, you say that, but because, a, because if... It, I, was, if sorry, it, I was just going to say, Matt, politicians are here for, for a set period of time, but a decision to leave a union that we've been part of for over 300 years, the most powerful political and economic union that the world has ever seen is bigger than people's views and opinions on one individual politician
0: i mean it sort of tells us i think people listen quite a lot that your your basic line is don't worry boris johnson's not going to be there forever um and that's the sort of the argument you've got for keeping the union together
4: Well, no. I think there's there's many arguments for keeping the union together. In particular, how we've worked together during this pandemic, how you know we've seen the support uh, that uh, people and uh, individuals, businesses, and communities right across the United Kingdom have received during this. Pandemic at how we have worked together to ensure that that we get through this crisis. The amazing restrictions that, that people have lived under and the sacrifices that they've made have been, you know, compatible in, in all four parts of the United Kingdom. But there are many strong cases for for Scotland to remain part of the, the UK. And, and it, as I've said, it's something I'm passionate about. You know, I'm proud to be a Scot and a Brit. Um, but we've also got to realise that people's uh, views on politicians right now. Um, are, are not the determining factor or shouldn't be the determining factor on the future of our country i suppose we should um we should discuss uh coronavirus
0: and the impact that that's had in scotland one of the things that's um really striking is that um you know the exams debacle, students locked up in universities cases rising hospitality meltdown the, the picture in scotland is almost exactly the same as the picture of the rest of the uk isn't it even though um for reasons we've just discussed, Nicola Sturgeon still, uh, her personal ratings are much better in the Prime Minister's. Why do you think that is? Is she just better at selling the same policies?
4: Well, I've said you know, Nicola Sturgeon is a very accomplished communicator, but, but you're right. The problems that we've seen uh, in other parts of the United Kingdom and indeed in, in other parts of the world, you know, governments are facing huge decisions, you know, really complex decisions and mistakes have been made and will continue to be made. Um, But, you know, no one who has looked at the the figures and and what has happened in Scotland can honestly, hand on heart, say that that it's been handled significantly different or better in Scotland than other parts of the the, the United Kingdom, despite what the SNP and others will try to say. Um, So I do think we've got to look at this realistically and say there have been feelings um, and we've got to learn from them. And I think it's very unfortunate that, for example... Here in Scotland, uh, people who had had a positive test for COVID-19 in hospital were discharged with that test result into care home settings, and that has clearly led to lives being lost. But despite losing a vote uh, about this in the Scottish Parliament, the SNP still won't um, have an inquiry into that. And I want that inquiry to make sure these mistakes aren't made again, that the SNP both ignore uh, the strong uh, issues that surround this matter, but also votes in Parliament to demand that they actually have an inquiry on this issue.
0: On the subject of schools as well, there's obviously been a lot of concern about uh, what is going on in schools and a debate in England about whether or not some schools in areas with high levels of cases should shut early for the Christmas holidays. Do you think that's something that should be considered in Scotland?
4: Well, it has been considered and and it's been uh, ruled out that the... Deputy First Minister of the Education Secretary took the decision to, to allow councils to uh, decide on a local level. But I think given the disruption we've seen to young people uh, in the last year and how education was disrupted between March and the exams, and then as young people went from uh, secondary school into college or, or universities, and all the problems we've had in Scotland, uh, I'd like to see them having the, the best possible chance at, uh, you know, at consistent uh, education uh, this year because they've suffered so much in the last few months.
0: And on this question of uh, what happens over Christmas, the five-day uh, relaxation of the rules and three households being able to mix, obviously there were, this was a plan drawn up um, with all four uh, nations in the UK so that people can go and see family who live in different parts of the country. But um, this morning we've had the British Medical Journal and the Health Service Journal uh, publishing a joint editorial calling on the government to rethink the plans. There seemed to be growing pressure uh, on the government to rethink this because of fears it will just lead to a massive spike in January. Where do you stand on this? What do you think the right thing to do is over Christmas?
4: Well, I think the four governments together took the decision because they were worried if they don't set parameters, people were going to uh, to mix and, and meet family members regardless. So I think you've got to look at the, the behaviour of people, but just stress that, you know, the virus is not taking a break for five days. It doesn't go away over Christmas. It doesn't, um, you know, uh, have less impact on people's lives over that five-day period. So it's saying that these, you know, uh, restrictions have been reduced for this short period, only if people are sensible and um you know uh, pay attention to all the advice that this is not a free ticket to, to just enjoy yourself as normal this will be a very different christmas to one that, that we've ever experienced before but let's be sensible about this let's follow the advice as, as much as possible to ensure that next year we can have a, a proper christmas with everyone together in a normal way um, what will you be doing Right over Christmas, so, yeah, my, both sets of uh, my parents and my my wife's parents will be coming around for a very brief period to to see our son Alistair opening up uh, his presents from them, uh, and then it'll just be the three of us uh, for the rest of the day. So yeah, it's good that my my parents and, and Crystal's parents can see their, their grandson opening presents. say he was here last year, but didn't really understand much. He's <laughs> more excited this year. Um, uh, he's still more interested in the boxes than what's in the boxes so I keep saying to Crystal we could have a far cheaper Christmas than he planned by buying him some boxes but you know, we'll be very careful um, you know, it's not going to be the same Christmas where we can all get together have hugs at the, the door and things like that it's going to be really difficult for people but we understand that the sacrifices that we make this year will make next year's Christmas far more enjoyable and one that we can really get back to a, a form of normality
0: and, and, you know, hope, congratulations, you will have another baby uh, come next Christmas as well. So it'll be even more, uh, even more expensive Christmas next year. Um, just going to a lot busier, yeah. Just finally then, uh, you know, you'd have to get it delivered because we are able to do it in person. But what would you buy Nicholas Sturgeon and Boris Johnson for Christmas?
4: Uh, I'd buy them both uh, a nice bottle of Scottish malt whiskey because uh, Murray is home to more uh, Scotch uh, whiskey distilleries than any other part of the country. Uh, and I'm always very proud of, of what we produce here. So a nice bottle of Scotch for the group. Are you doing any refereeing over Christmas? Any Boxing Day games or anything? Uh, Boxing Day games aren't out, but I've got a game this Saturday um, uh, at uh, Ibrox: Rangers versus Motherwell, and we'll find out in the next couple of days where we are on Boxing Day. And so I've got to ask you this because it does. So, I
0: mean, and I say this as a journalist so we are ranked alongside sort of estate agents and uh, um, in terms of you know public trust and faith and that sort of thing. Does being? Do you think being a football uh, referee in Scotland um, helps in your appeal to swing voters? I think people just think I'm a
4: glutton for punishment. Why would you be a politician? And <laughs> uh, are uh, two of the most unpopular jobs you can get? So uh, yeah, I think uh, some people just wonder why I do it all.
0: Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB online via smart speaker or on the Times Radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe.